This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. When our water heater broke down last month, it was a nightmare. It took five hours for the plumber to show up, and he charged us a couple of hundred bucks just to come out. Then it cost another $1,800 to put in the new water heater. By the time it was all said and done, I felt like I'd been taken. But what else could I do? The smartest thing you can do is get a home warranty from American Residential Warranty. Their home warranties pay to repair or replace all your major appliances when they break. And they will break. And at the worst possible time, call American Residential Warranty right now for free information on home warranties starting at just pennies a day. Don't wait for your refrigerator to stop running or your ceiling fans to stop turning. Call American Residential Warranty right now. Ask how you can save up to 50% on water. And dryer coverage. Just call 1 800 686 3910. That's 1 800 686 3910. Again, 1 800 686 3910. Call now. This is David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network. great sadness that we meet this weekend. I have a very heavy heart after learning of the death of United States Supreme Court Justice Antonin Nino Scalia, suddenly, unexpectedly. Obviously, our thoughts and prayers, my thoughts and prayers anyway, are with his surviving family members. They had to have hit them hard, but you know, when you're in a position like him, a very public figure. You belong to the public. So we all share in that grief as we mourn the passing of what, in my opinion, is one of the greatest jurists to ever sit on the the United States Supreme Court. He will be missed for a number of reasons. One of the other things for me is It's a hard hit for traditional constitutionalists. I'm a constitutional sheriff. The document means everything to me. I took an oath, I swore an oath, to uphold it, to protect your rights. How do you replace that? Well, first of all, I'm one of those that believes that nobody's irreplaceable, but some people are harder to replace than others. And I would put U.S. Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia in that category. But we'll get through this. You may hear some background noise from time to time. I'm not in my traditional location. I'm actually in a hotel lobby. So if you hear some talking and all that going on in the background, that's what that's about. That's just a heads up. Let's talk about some of the moving parts involving this replacement for Justice Antonin Scalia. First of all, yes, according to the Constitution, the president nominates to fill vacancies on the United States Supreme Court. Nobody's going to argue that. Nobody's going to try to deny him that. But the Senate also plays a role in this, too. You know what's ironic for me is I've spent the last couple of broadcasts here talking about the role of the Senate in the filling of judicial nominations to the federal bench. I brought out uh, certain, several people, names 
who I thought was questionable for the GOP-controlled Senate to confirm, but they did it. That is their prerogative. But we gave them control of the Senate for a reason in 2014, and it was to block Barack Obama, where they have the authority to do so, and they do have authority to do that. But they, don't, they haven't been so, so eager to use it, more eager to compromise and capitulate and work together with people and reach across the aisle, things that we can work on together. Anytime the Democrats and Republicans are working together in Washington, folks, the American people are the losers. So Obama stands up there and does this obligatory news conference. They had to get him off the golf course, of course. He was in California golfing. He wants to get an early start on his, his golf game, so he has to go west. The courses on the East Coast aren't open yet, still snow-covered and frozen. So he gets up there and does the obligatory sympathy. and Then he has the nerve, the gall, to say, per the Constitution, I will be nominating someone to fill the vacancy of Justice Scalia. And he said, and I expect the Senate to fulfill their constitutional obligation in confirming it. And I, I, I almost fell out of my chair. Here's a guy, ladies and gentlemen, who for seven-plus years has done nothing but thumb his nose at the Constitution. He sees the Const United States Constitution as a hindrance to what he wants to do with our great country. He has intimated that. He has said he would circumvent it. He has said to the Senate... If the Senate doesn't act, then I will. It basically says, I will circumvent you. I will circumvent your authority under the Constitution. I will circumvent your authority and your role in this shared powers under the Constitution if you don't act. He cannot do that. But now all of a sudden he wants to cloak himself around his constitutional duty. It's not a right. It's a duty when it comes to him. He wants to cloak himself around the Constitution and say, per my constitutional authority. This guy can't stand the United States Constitution. So what do we do now with the Senate? Mitch McConnell has made it clear that uh, the nomination will not be filled. It should be held for the next president who will be elected in November and take office in January, uh, January 20th of 2017. I think that is the right thing to do because we're talking about a lifetime tenure. We're talking about somebody that we're going to have to live with well after Barack Obama, well after Barack Obama. But I caution you to listen to the words closely when you hear people talk. McConnell said, that Obama should not, should not, should not fill, or that position should not be filled until the next president. There's a difference between should not and won't. It was a little ambiguous to me when, when he came out with his initial statement. Now, he's, he's, he's shorted up a little bit since then. 
kind of made it clear. And there's a process. You have heard me on this program talk about process as it relates to government. And I believe in that process. And that process should be followed. Barack Obama doesn't have the decency to hold off. He doesn't have it in him. He could do that. You know, like I said, from day one, he's, he's just trampled the United States Constitution. From the early days when he appointed all these czars, they had no constitutional authority to do. And in the courts, I believe the courts threw that out. That was challenged by this uh, Congress. They just kept them in place anyway. We just didn't hear about them anymore. They didn't officially resign. So the Senate has a role in this, and it is to, it's the, you know, advising consent. They don't have to act on this, or they can stretch it out. They can change the rules, Senate rules I'm talking about, not the Constitution. They can accept the nomination and then decide what they want to do with it. They can run out the clock. That would be my advice. Run out the clock. You're only talking about 10 more months until he's gone. Less than that until the November election. And then I'm hearing some things that, well, Obama might try to do an end around and name a moderate to the court that would make it tough for the GOP to not confirm. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no such thing as a moderate on the court. And the last time the Republican, a Republican president tried that, we ended up with David Souter. How moderate did he turn out to be? And he was nominated by a Republican president. We have activist judges, and we have strict constructionist judges on the high court. And I would never in a million years trade a strict constructionist like Antonin Scalia for a moderate-slash- Activist, because that's what that word means to the left. There's no moderation in that party. None whatsoever. Everything's to the extreme. So we'll have more to say about this a little later. You're listening to David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network. When our water heater broke down last month, it was a nightmare. It took five hours for the plumber to show up, and he charged us a couple of hundred bucks just to come out. Then it cost another $1,800 to put in the new water heater. By the time it was all said and done, I felt like I'd been taken. But what else could I do? The smartest thing you can do is get a home warranty from American Residential Warranty. Their home warranties pay to repair or replace all your major appliances when they break. And they will break. And at the worst possible time, call American Residential Warranty right now for free information on home warranties starting at just pennies a day. Don't wait for your refrigerator to stop running or your ceiling fans to stop turning. Call American Residential Warranty right now. Ask how you can save up to 50% on wash and dryer coverage. Just call 1-800-686-3910. That's 1-800-686-3910. Again, 1-800-686-3910. Call now. David Clark, the People's Sheriff. So we were talking about the placement for Justice Antonin Scalia and the process that goes 
uh, to making that selection. And I talked about and mentioned how the president, Obama, had said, uh, you know, per the Constitution, I have an obligation and I have a duty under the Constitution to nominate somebody to replace Justice Scalia. And I mentioned about how he, he, he now finds it um, obligatory to honor the Constitution. This guy's been thumbing his nose at the Constitution for seven-plus years. Here's an example. This is from the Daily Caller. Michael Bastash. Obama administration vows to sign U.N. global warming deal without Senate approval. The Obama administration has vowed to sign a U.N. global warming deal in April despite intense opposition from the Senate and a Supreme Court ruling derailing the government's green regulatory scheme. Quote, we're going to go ahead and sign this agreement this year, Todd Stern, the U.S.'s climate envoy, envoy told reporters Tuesday, brushing aside questions about whether last week's Supreme Court ruling against the EPA um, key climate regulation would matter. Now all of a sudden, the Constitution doesn't matter. You see how despicable this individual is? Another thing about this, the the death of uh, United States Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. A couple days after it was announced uh, that he had passed, all of a sudden the uh, conspiracy started. This happens every time a well-known figure dies suddenly. Somebody finds a need to create some conspiracy. And, of course, it it fueled on social media. Do me a favor. Folks, don't be that guy. I was sickened when I read some of that stuff. I said, here we go again. It happens all the time. When some noted individual passes suddenly. Now, many of you may know I'm a veteran homicide detective. I participated in over 450 homicides in a four-year period when I was with the Milwaukee Police Department. And for two years, I was a lieutenant of detectives, and I supervised homicide investigations. That means I went to the scene, assigned my detectives to certain roles, and I oversaw the thing. And I was in charge of that investigation. My point is this. I know what a homicide investigation is. I know how they work. Now, I was not on the scene in Texas. I was not in that, that ranch or, or resort or whatever it was. I was not in that room. I don't have access to any of the reports. But neither do you. And neither does anybody who started this conspiracy that uh, there may be some suspicious nature to the death of, uh, of, of Anton, Antonin Scalia or the cause of death. This is the stuff that tabloid magazines make millions off of. Next, it'll be some space aliens came down and, and, and uh, tried to suck all the knowledge out of his head and take it back, and in doing so, they killed him. That's the kind of stuff that'll appear on the Inquirer and other tabloids. As I said, don't be that guy. And like I said, I wasn't on that scene, and I don't have access to the reports. I didn't see any of the scene photos. But I know this in terms of having done these investigations. 
if you're going to suggest to me that that sheriff's office down there in Texas would participate in a cover-up on a death such as this, well, then you're one of those that believes that the uh, Bush administration brought down the World Trade Center towers, okay? That would be you. There are a lot of people who would have who would have to be involved if this were a homicide and to cover it. Up. What would be the the motivation for that sheriff's office to cover it up? What they wanted him dead? They're being paid off. It's insane. And unlike TV, every doesn't everything doesn't always make sense. In a homicide scene. And I'm hearing about this pillow over the head, with which, by the way, the guy that found the body came out and, and reiterated that. And said, it didn't say it was over the face. And I thought that right away when it said a pillow over his head. I said, well, what, what, what does that mean? It didn't say over his face. What he said when he came out and because he heard all of this controversy surrounding it, when he said pillow over the head, he said there was a pillow between his head and the headboard and then a pillow under his head. So he said a pillow over his head, meaning on top of it. Or are you suggesting that he's changing his story? I mean, this stuff is sick, ladies and gentlemen, that people do this at a time like this. How do you think the family feels? Here's another thing. Family declined an autopsy. That's up to the family, unless, and every state is different. That can be overruled if somebody on the scene there, if the sheriff's office said there was some some indication of foul play, they could go to the county prosecutor, the state's attorney, whatever, who would be uh, investigating this thing along with them. And somebody could order an autopsy over the objections of the family. But you better have a damn good reason, as far as I'm concerned, if you're going to override or overrule the family's decision not to have an autopsy. A lot of people pass on autopsies, family, survivors. They don't need a reason. I hear people saying, well, why wouldn't they want to... It's none of our business. Or are you suggesting the family's in on these suspicious circumstances too? And that's why they, that, that's what the conspiracy theorists will say. Well, the family's in on this. You watch, there'll be books written about this, and people will buy them. This is suspicion surrounding the death of a United States Supreme Court justice. There may even be an a, um, uh, episode on CSI or whatever that goofy show is on TV. They like to follow themes of the day for their storylines. But stay away from that kind of stuff. And if we learn something else as we go on here, that's fine. I will reconsider my my opinion on this thing. And like I said, it's no more valid than yours because I wasn't on the scene, you weren't on the scene. But I have a little bit more experience than most of you do when it comes to this sort of stuff. To suggest that a law enforcement agency and a state prosecutor down in Texas and the family 
we're in on some conspiracy to suffocate him because that's what we're that's what people are intimating when they say a pillow oh did you hear there was a pillow over his head they're intimating that he was suffocated first of all there'd be a struggle when you try to suffocate somebody there's a struggle there's no according to the news reports there's no evidence of a struggle if there were the sheriff's office would have said there's some suspicious uh, there's a s- suspicion here you know, they wouldn't say uh, no, no evidence of foul play. They would have said that. And I think they would have gotten out. And there's a way to tell through a medical examiner, through a, a post-mortem. And so yeah, later on, if they, somebody wants to change their mind, they could do an autopsy. You can't suffocate somebody and get away with it. There are things that happen physically to the body that would be found. So this coroner or whoever attended to the, uh, the, the death down there, he or she would know that, that if I just say this or I'm covering this up, someone else might. Ladies and gentlemen, don't, like I said, don't be that guy. This is David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. I will not be here Thursday or Friday or Monday. I will be in seclusion. In seclusion? I figure out how to plan that $1.3 billion and you can't just uh, oh, can't get the money. Oh, of course, yeah. Did you buy a ticket over the weekend? No, I did not buy a ticket over the weekend. I bought several tickets okay, over the weekend. Did you buy a ticket over the weekend? Uh-uh. Did you buy several tickets over the weekend? Five. I bought five. Wow. The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday morning, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. David Clark, the People's Sheriff. Today's election day in South Carolina, first southern state. Voting dynamic changes considerably southern states. So we'll have more to say about that in uh, Nevada next week. You know, I've talked in previous programs about uh, some of the things that go on in this political environment, and everybody thinks that uh, it's a huge shift or a defining moment. And I try to downplay that, and you know, because everything that moves in this heightened uh, presidential race, you know, is seen as some huge tremor or even an earthquake on a Richter scale, and, and most of the time it isn't. But I will say this: the death, the untimely death of United States Supreme Court Justice, the late Antonin Scalia, is a seismic shift in this presidential race, and there'll be other ones. And that's why, you know, as we go on, there'll be terror attacks in the United States, and it'll shift back to terror, and then the economy will do something, and it shift back to the economy. These are shifting situations. But this one is seismic, not because I say so. The stakes are so high. Whatever happens here. You know, that the next president of the United States uh, may get to select three to four Ginsburg is not long for the court. Some are talking Anthony Kennedy may decide to hang it up. Souter's getting long in the tooth. So, you know, those you know, those are three and then this one sitting right here, potentially four. That's why we gave the GOP, at least I did, I wanted to give them control of the Senate for these judicial nominations. They weren't blocking them. When I say blocking them, this is what this is what goes on. Heard me talk last week about the number of of uh, uh, confirmed 
jurists on the federal courts under the Bush administration versus under the Obama administration, and the Obama administration is outpacing it. That's what the left does. They stack the courts. It is a firewall. In case something happens in the Congress, in case something happens with uh, uh, the executive, their firewall is to run to court and get some activist judge to side with them. So they try to stack the courts. They stack the D.C. district. Remember the nuclear option with Harry Reid to end Senate debate on a filibuster with a simple majority, 51 instead of 60, and then stack the federal courts. So that's how important this is. And finally, as as often as we've been let down by this GOP-controlled Senate and House, that can all go away. That can all go away. Poof! If they make sure that Barack Obama does not fill this seat on the high court. And I don't care about, uh, you know, well, the... The, 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 the Republicans will be considered obstructionists. Who cares about that? This is politics, folks. Politics is war. It is not for the faint of heart. It is a contact sport. It is either hit or be hit. But in the end, the name of the game is to win. The Democrats understand that. The Republicans, not so much. Mitch McConnell can become the hero on our side. When I, our side, I'm not saying Republican. I'm talking about conservative side. With this one action, because I'll tell you what, if I wake up one day and read a, a, a story or a headline about uh, Mitch McConnell's been invited to the White House by Obama to discuss the uh, Supreme Court nomination, I'm going to get very worried. Every time he or previously Boehner went over to the White House, they got rolled. Obama fights bare knuckles, brass knuckles. He arm twists. He doesn't negotiate. He does not compromise. He shoves things down your throat. And you never can believe the guy anyway. You can come out of there having heard him say one thing, and he'll take to the microphone that afternoon in the Rose Garden or the East Room, and he'll start just lambasting Republicans. It's obstructionists in the way they won't because they don't want to support the first black president. He'll intimate that. He won't come out and say that, but he'll have his surrogates do it. This is what we're up against. It is war. Politics is war. Again, the bottom line in politics is win. Don't worry how it looks. Win. Let's move on to this issue of white privilege. You've heard this a lot. It's the left's newest, especially at the college-university level, they're indoctrinating these mush minds in this this concept or idea of of, of white privilege, that because you're born white, uh, you've been granted some sort of one-up on everybody else, even though you don't control how you're born. That's how stupid this is. But I saw this story in National Review. I want to read it. It's pretty good. This is by Dennis Prager. And it says, a pillar of contemporary leftism is the notion of white privilege. Given that a generation of high school and college students are being taught that a great number of unearned privileges accrue to white Americans, the charge of white privilege demands rational inquiry. The assertion turns out to be largely meaningless. And more significantly, it does great harm to blacks. First, no reasonable person 
can argue that white privilege applies to the great majority of whites, let alone to all whites. Let me say that again. No reasonable person can argue that white privilege applies to the great majority of whites, let alone all whites. There are simply too many variables other than race that determine individual success in America. And if it were true, why would whites commit suicide at twice the rate of blacks and at a higher rate of any other race in America except American Indians? According to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, white men who the left argues are the most privileged group of all in America commit seven out of every ten su- uh, homis- I'm sorry, suicides in America, even though only three of ten Americans are white males. Whatever reason one gives for the white suicide rate, it is indisputable that the very least considerably more whites than blacks consider life not worth living. To argue that all these whites were oblivious to all the unique privilege they had is a stretch of the definition of privilege beyond credulity. Second, there are a host of privileges that dwarf white privilege. A huge one is two-parent privilege. If you were raised by a father and mother, you enter adulthood with more privileges than anyone else in American society, irrespective of race, ethnicity, or sex. That's why the poverty rate among two-parent black families is only 7%. Compare that with the 22% poverty rate among whites in single-parent homes. Obviously, the two-parent home is a decisive privilege. Another, another privilege, if one wants to use that term, that dwarfs white privilege is Asian privilege. American Asians do better than whites in school on IQ tests on credit scores and other positive measures. In fact, according to recent data from the Federal Reserve, Asians are about to surpass whites as the wealthiest group of Americans. Will the left soon complain about Asian privilege? And how about Gentile privilege? For most of American history, it was a lot easier being a Christian and being a Jew in America. Yet I do not know a Jew, myself included, who doesn't believe that to be a Jew in America has always been an unbelievable stroke of good fortune. It is not surprising that an American Jew, Irving Berlin, wrote, God bless America. There are even times when there is minority privilege in America today. Every high school student knows that given similar scholastic and extracurricular records, one chance of being accepted into a prestigious college are considerably greater if one is a member of a minority, most especially the black minority. And the biggest privilege of all is American privilege. Unless you and your family make some big mistake, the great privilege of all is to be an American. That is why much of the world wants to live in America. So then why is all this left, what is all this left-wing talk about white privilege? goes on to say, white privilege is another left-wing attempt and a successful one to keep America from focusing on what will truly help black America, the resurrection of the black family, for example, and instead to focus on an external problem, white privilege. In doing so, the left has become the only real enemy that blacks in America have today. Again, National Review, Dennis Prager. This is David Clark. The People's Sheriff on the Blaze Radio Network. 
I think what you're just going to see is an increase in the difference between a public university and private one. That differential will become a chasm. People will start to say, wow, private schools are really worth the extra cost in many cases because if the state is making all these schools entirely free, there's going to have to either be vast amounts of money piled into this or you're just going to have to have a decrease in the quality. Buck Sexton. Weekdays, noon to 3 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to David Clark, the People's Sheriff. Well, it didn't take long. The race game has already started, and the next election for the United States Supreme Court justice to sit on. Juan Williams of Fox News has said he thinks race is behind any attempt by the Republicans to block Obama's nomination. And a CNN reporter said that uh, Obama would uh, accuse the Republicans of being racist if they tried to block block his Supreme Court nomination. I mean, this is even record time for them. But you knew that was coming. Uh, Just another example of what we're up against. You have to swat that stuff away and uh, keep Barack Obama from filling uh, that spot on the Supreme Court. Just like I said, Republicans have a great opportunity here to for the long-term foreseeable future, make sure that that court stays at least leaning right. And when I say that, I'm not talking about in terms of of ideology. I'm talking in terms of being a strict constructionist. Justices who apply the law, they don't make the law. They're not activists. They don't see the Constitution as some living, breathing thing. That's how important this is. So we'll keep an eye on that as that moves forward. Now... Wall Street Journal's reporting that terror convicts pose a dilemma after release from prison. You've heard me on this program numerous times say that we need a more effective strategy in dealing with homegrown terrorists and dealing with radicalization of, of American citizens. And I pointed out the weaknesses and the flaws in the way that we do this. We're trying to use a law enforcement paradigm. And I suggest that the President of the United States should use his uh, powers as a commander-in-chief that these individuals should be charged with treason if they're U.S. citizens, and they should forfeit their citizenship. You want to give them a process for that? Fine. Forfeit their citizenship, and they should be held at Gitmo. The reason why they should be held at Gitmo, I do not want our jails and prisons here in the United States to become a terror network for these individuals uh, with which to operate. So, and then, of course, if you get the ones who are not American citizens, they go right to Gizmo as enemy combatants. They're not soldiers. The Geneva Convention does not apply. And the thing is, you can hold them indefinitely. So as long as we think that this war on terror is going to go on for, I don't know, let's say in perpetuity, well, then you can hold these individuals in perpetuity. And, and I've told you what will happen if we continue with this flawed idea that we can arrest our way out of this uh, situation with uh, homegrown radicalization. So here's what this uh, story from the Wall Street Journal said. It's by Nicole Hong. As convicted Islamic State supporters in the U.S. serve their sentences, authorities are tackling a new challenge, what to do with them when they get out of prison. Oh, boy, I never saw that coming. Since 2014, more than 75 people have been arrested in the United States on charges related to Islamic State 
terrorism uh, and a terror organization known as ISIS or ISIL. Of the 25 individuals who have pleaded guilty, eight have been given prison sentences, while the rest of them will be sentenced in the coming months, according to Fordham's Law School Center on National Security. The cases of those who have plead, haven't pleaded guilty, guilty are pending. Some of those convicted could be exiting prison as early as 2017, raising the question of how to reintegrate them back into their communities across the United States. What happens when these folks start getting out, asked John Carlin, who heads the Justice Department's National Security Division. There are programs for drug addicts and gang members. There's not one with a proven track record of success for terrorism. Well, I can tell you right now that there aren't programs successful programs anyway dealing with um, uh, gang members and drug addicts coming out of prison either if we think we can turn these people around uh, with some sort of program I don't know midnight basketball or whatever uh, the, the, the flavor of the day is well then these people are dumber than they look going back to the story here the Bureau of Prisons said in a statement that inmates convicted on terror charges have the same opportunity to receive reentry programming as other inmates including drug treatment and faith-based programs. Think about that. You have individuals who have sworn an allegiance to Islam, to Islamic terror, Islamic extremism, and now you're going to try to reintegrate them back into society with a faith-based program? Is it going to be Christian-based? Jewish-based, or is it going to be Islamic-based? I mean, this is insane. We still don't have our hands around this thing more than a decade after this war on terror started. We're still fumbling our way through this. I think there's a, an approach to this. I said an approach. I didn't say a solution. I think there's an approach to this that's worthy of at least a discussion to start and maybe implementation as we go along. Get more people in on it, more discussion, more debate. We can have that. I think we dust off the, terrorist, the, the treason statute. Until last time somebody was charged with treason, by the way, there's probably some uh, FBI agent who was caught uh, or, or CIA agent caught giving secrets to the Soviets probably goes back to the Cold War era, and it wasn't used that often. So you charge them with treason. I think they forfeit their citizenship. I said think because there has to be a process for that. I think those that are trying to get overseas to fight with ISIS should be allowed to leave. This is the United States of America. We don't hold anybody captive here. I'm talking about in terms of you have to stay in America. If somebody wants to go to Syria, if somebody wants to go to Yemen and, and fight with ISIS, let them go. And as soon as that plane has wheels up, revoke their passport. Bye-bye. You're not getting back in. Then we don't have to worry about it. But they go to the airport and they arrest these individuals and then they wonder why this story here in the Wall Street Journal, why we're sitting here, why we're, we're sitting here looking at this. This is a crazy way to deal with this. I've said you're going to fill our jails and prisons with these individuals who have sworn an allegiance to ISIS. And then what? Because we don't hold people that long. We don't even hold 
serious offenders, criminal, violent criminals, for a long period of time. We're already opening up the doors of the federal prisons at the state level as well and letting these individuals out, out of, what, feigned sympathy? So going back here, it says, For those convicted of terror-related charges who don't receive life sentences, courts usually impose a period of supervised release under a probation officer after, after the prison sentence ends. That can include stipulations that bar them from holding a passport or possessing explosive materials. Like that's going to be effective. Like they're going to adhere to that. They're trying to get to Allah. But as part of the government's broader initiative to counter violent extremism, the Justice Department and other agencies are exposing the possibility of creating special programs to help reintegrate inmates with terrorism-related charges According to people involved in the discussion, a spokesman for the Justice Department declined to comment. That's not going to work either. So here's what Peter King says, a representative from New York, during a hearing of the United States Counterterrorism and Intelligence Subcommittee. Uh, he said more than 100 inmates in federal prisons, prisons with links to terrorism would be released over the next five years. He says, we have never been faced with such large numbers of terror inmates before, said Mr. King. I told you this was going to happen. Can't these people foresee? So we'll keep up with this uh, as time goes on. To I'll continue to push this idea, uh, my idea of how to handle with, how to handle and deal with homegrown terrorism. So we're out of time for today. Thanks for being here. Follow me during the week at Sheriff Clark C L A R K E on Twitter and at thepeoplesheriff.com. This is David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network.